All right, today we're gonna to talk about some of the um, original articles and the podcast on Validia's Guru Investor blog, and also some of the um, top articles that stood out to us in the curating that we're doing um, on the blog for the week of May 21st, 2021. So to start, um, Jack, I thought I'd let you um, kind of get into your article about the voting machine versus the weighing machine in the market. Yeah, you know, this is a tough article for me to write because I, I don't think I had any answers to it. Um, I was, it was more like me thinking aloud and, try, and trying to think through. You know, it comes back to the Benjamin Graham quote, which is not really a Benjamin Graham quote, which is in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, the market is a weighing machine. And, and the idea behind that is in the short term, you know, flows and supply and demand is what governs what happens to securities. And then in the long term, fundamentals matter. So in, in the long term, you know, fundamentals will win out over, over the voting. Um, and, and so I wanted to sort of, but you know, what we've seen recently is a, is a lot more voting going on and maybe a lot less weighing. You know, we've seen a lot of day, you know, certain assets are going up 20x in a certain week. And, you know, like just today when we talk, we're having a very volatile day in the market and crypto is crashing. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of this voting type stuff going on. And so I was just struggling with, you know, what, how much of a role does voting play and how much of a role does weighing play, you know, in, in the market? And, you know, I think there's a, there was a quote I used in the article uh, from Ben Hunt um, and Rusty Ginn from their podcast, which I think describes it pretty well, which is that ultimately the market is always a voting machine because what determines whether a stock goes up or down? I mean, whether people want to buy it or people want to sell it. I mean, ultimately that, that's always what goes on. The market is always a voting machine, but it's a voting machine that will eventually care about fundamentals. Because if you think about it, you know, what are you, when you're buying shares in a company, what are you buying? You're buying the same thing as if you bought like ownership in a private company. And what's going to determine the value of those shares in the long term? It's going to be things like cash flows or dividends or earnings. You know, it's going to be what the actual business does. And so although we've had this, this period here where maybe capital was readily available, you know, and, and, other, and other things are going on maybe that makes it more of a voting machine, in the long term, you would expect, you know, when that ends, you'd expect the companies that actually can generate cash flow and the companies that actually can pay dividends, you know, you'd expect those companies to, you know, go up to whatever their intrinsic value was. But, but my general idea was this is just a tough thing to think through. You know, it's, it, as you pointed out to me, you know, it's not necessarily the Graham quote. And what, what Graham actually said is basically the same thing that uh, Rusty Ginn and Ben Hunt said, which is that the market is always effectively a voting machine. Um, you know, he didn't say it's a, and I think that was, you can probably clarify this, but I think Buffett was the one that actually, you know, took it and make it, made it into that quote about the voting machine in the short term and the weighing machine in the long term. But it, it's just something I struggle with both ways. And so I just wanted to, I, I didn't really have a conclusion, but I wanted to write about it and sort of, you know, just think, think it out loud, think out loud about it um, through one of my articles. Yeah, but I think it was good because I think when you look back at the market over time, there's periods where the voting machine gets a lot more weight in the market. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you go back to the dot-com uh, internet boom, you know, clearly those companies were crazy overvalued. So investors were voting with their dollars and bidding up these companies to crazy valuations. And that ended up, you know, ending badly. You kind of had the same thing before the financial crisis with the housing market, where prices were going through the roof and they weren't really, you know, it, it wasn't realistic to, you know, for, to see housing prices up, whatever it was, 20 or 30% a year for those few years. It was just unsustainable. And so I think what you're seeing now in the market is some of this, it's different, but it's investors voting with their dollars. And to your point, it's a lot of it's not tied back to sort of fundamentals or it can't be, you can't really rationalize this with like fundamentals anymore. So it's something that, you know, there's no, like you said, there's no like right answer or concrete answer here, but I think there's certainly signs that the voting is, um, 
sort of it's it's happening much more because of these these things that we're seeing. Yeah, you know, I mean, people are ultimately irrational at times, and people are what determines the flows that make things go up and down. So you have to expect that there's going to be, you know, extended periods of time where things maybe don't make as much sense based on fundamentals, because that that can drive, you know, what people do can drive prices up a lot. They can drive prices down a lot. Um, before we go to the next thing, what was the what was the story behind the Graham quote? It was something Buffett's put in a letter or something. Um, yeah, well, well, I think I think Graham had it like the market is a, is a. Um voting machine, like not whatever he said. And then Buffett put it in a shareholder letter or in an interview, he kind of changed it and he tied it to, you know, it's voting or more based on investor psychology in the short run, but in the long run, it's sort of tied to fundamentals. But if you read the actual quote in the intelligent investor, Graham was saying something very different. You, and you had that, I think in your article or. Yeah, I think, you know, Graham never used the word weighing in, in the actual quote, and Buffett sort of added the weighing to the end of it when he was, you know, which might have been what Graham believed. It just wasn't what was in the, uh, in the actual text. Um, what was our podcast this week? Right. So, yeah, we talked about, we kind of built on that um, article that I had written about ways you might be able to protect your profits or manage risk with your portfolio after a big market run. And, you know, it wasn't anything groundbreaking. We were just talking about, you know, asset class diversification, rebalancing, um, maybe looking at the areas of the market that haven't done as well and trying to tilt into those around the edges, um, you know, and a few other ideas that we thought might, you know, help minimize some volatility or downside risk should we get um, a big pullback, it, you know, and it, it kind of in the end with this stuff, it's not, you know, you don't want to be making huge binary choices of things. And I think that's one of the things we talked about. It's like, you want to kind of strategically be, you know, making changes to your portfolio that fit within your risk tolerance and your long-term time horizon and not get too far away from that. But, and this, by the way, this kind of came up because we've been getting questions lately around how investors might be able to protect their portfolio um, and, you know, take off some risk. And so that's kind of was the genesis for why, why we're discussing this. I wonder if we've uh, we've jinxed the market here because you got me writing about the voting machine versus the weighing machine. You've got you writing about options for man managing risk in a market drawdown. Uh, I mean, I wonder if we maybe caused what's what's going on here. Oh, I don't, yeah, um, of course. I mean, we're, we we definitely have market moving uh, potential here with the. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we got tons and tons of listeners who are, who are moving the market here. Um, what article stood out to you this week? Uh, it was an article called Famed Investor Bill Miller is Roaring Back with Amazon, Bitcoin, and GM. And it's, uh, it's by uh, William Green, who wrote the book Richer, Wiser, Happier that just came out. And it's, it's some really interesting insights into Miller. And, you know, there's, there's a couple things that I took from it. One is, you know, the one thing you always see with these guys who are the best investors of all time is they always have this really bad period. And, you know, what they do in response to that bad period is what makes them a great investor. So there's a lot of investors who seemed like they were going to be great investors, had a really bad period, and never came back. You know, but the ones we the ones that stand the test of time are people like Miller who have that bad period, you know, and, and then they actually get better than they were probably before it. And, you know, in the article it mentioned he lost seventy seven billion dollars of assets, um, you know, in 2008, which which was his bad period. Um, I think he was heavily in financials um, and some other stocks like that during that period. I mean, you and I probably will never manage seventy seven billion dollars uh, in our lifetime. So he lost more than we ever will. Uh, we will ever gather. But it, it was just interesting because since then, he's totally turned it around. I mean, he, he now works for himself. He doesn't manage, you know, his he, he manages his own internal fund now. Um, and, and he's the top one percent of all funds, I think, over pretty much any period you can you can measure. Um, and also he was, you know, one of the interesting things from the article is he was a, he was, 
he was buying Amazon aggressively in 2008. So he thinks he, other than the Bezos family, um, he thinks he is the number one individual shareholder of Amazon, which is pretty amazing. And then the, the part that's even more amazing is he was buying Bitcoin at, you know, 200, 300, 400, $500. And now he thinks his Bitcoin position is worth more than his Amazon position. So he's, you know, the largest Amazon shareholder other than Bezos. And then he's got a Bitcoin position that's worth more than that. So obviously he's He's made himself into a billionaire with some of these contrarian moves, and he was willing to buy these things, you know, when either other people didn't notice them or when they were out of favor, and you know, it's, it's worked out really well for him. Yeah, you know, I re- remember before he before the financial crisis, he had 15 straight years, I think, of outperforming the S and P, which was it was I think the the most consecutive years of outperforming the market of any of any fund manager. So now, if you would have maybe taken a different uh, a different measure of a year starting on a different date. It wasn't true. It's not like he always outperformed over every one year period, of course. But so he had this astonishing track record going in and he kind of changed. He sort of flipped value investing on his head a little bit with more like trying to look at the you know long-term cash flow generation potential of the company is, can the company reinvest that money, you know, profitably and make a solid return on it. And he wasn't, you know, your traditional sort of value stock or, you know, your, your, um, what you would consider like your more, uh, traditional type, uh, value investor, just buying stuff that is cheap. You know, he had a different definition of how he defined value. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, if you start with sort of deep value gram type investing, you know, Buffett in a lot of ways redefined value with the, the buy high quality companies at a discount. And then Miller took it a step further, which is, you know, buy companies at a discount to whatever their future potential is. So that, that's, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, traditional value investors wouldn't consider that value. But it, in a lot of ways, it has been value because, he, I mean, he bought things like Amazon, you know, at, at prices that are way, way lower than what they are today. So obviously there was a lot of value that the traditional value metrics were not finding in something like Amazon. Um, what was your article this week? Um, it was an article by Jason Zweig. He writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal, one of um, our favorite writers. And he always writes uh, really sort of um, interesting, almost like con- – it's not contrarian. I mean it's really about investor behavior and psychology and stuff. And so this article was about you know, it's really hard when the market's always making you know, all-time highs day after day and things just con- basically continue to go up. It's – most of the time people are thinking about buying. The sell question or sell decision isn't usually even part of their thought process. And he sort of works through this idea that, you know, when you're investing, you, you wanna be thinking about buying, but you also wanna be thinking about selling. And he cites this new research, it's a, a, it's a research from an author of a new book, Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. And he cites these experiments that these researchers have done that talks about like, um, you know, the idea that, that like one of the things was like they, they studied people with building like Lego towers. And the first decision was always about adding blocks to get a tower better or bigger. It was never about taking them away. So as humans, like that's how we're wired. And when it comes to our investment portfolio, you know, we should not only be asking what should I buy, but rather what should I buy or sell? Um, because selling is very tough. And you know, a lot of people, if you, if you ask somebody on the street, oh, what stocks do you own or want to buy? They may be able to tell you those because those are their favorite ones. But well, what ones in your portfolio do you think you should sell? I mean, that seems to be a much harder question. And, um, you know, selling is selling is very important. Pruning your portfolio, you know, removing stocks, um, 
is sort of an important part of an investment process. So I don't know. I just think that's interesting. The only other thing I'd say to that, though, is that you have to be somewhat careful, too, because if you're in there making changes to a portfolio and let's say you sell a quarter of your portfolio, well, you kind of got to have something else if you want to be in the market with that money. You have to have something else decked up to buy. And sometimes investors don't necessarily have that that buy list right on the side of their desk. So that cash can, you know, be a drag if it's not put back into the market and put to work um, over time. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that emotions are a huge, you know, detractor from returns for investors and selling is probably the, the place where they're the most of a problem. You know, you're it, not only do you, you know, when things go down, it's very hard to decide whether to sell it, but also when things go up. And, you know, there's been this, there's this chart that always goes around Twitter of, you know, Amazon's returns since, you know, it's IPO and how ridiculous they are. And, you know, it, it, it's, it makes you think that, oh, I could have done that. But the, the reality is, Everyone would have sold Amazon, you know, between now and then. There were like 80% drawdowns in there and, you know, there were multiple, you know, 50% drawdowns. So everyone would have sold it. And, you know, this isn't just a problem for, you know, discretionary investors. It's a problem for people like us too, because as quants, when we're developing a sell strategy, you know, we have to think about, it's, it's easy to say, all right, you know, these stocks meet my model, so I'm going to buy them. But then when do I get rid of them? If I, you know, if I'm looking at the top 50 stocks from my model, if a stock falls to like number 60, I'm probably not going to sell it because I'd have way too much turnover. So you have to think through that same type of thing. You have to think through, you know, how highly does this stock rank compared to when I bought it? You know, what are the tax implications? So it, it's tough. I mean, I think it quantitatively is probably a better way to do it, but we, we still have problems in terms of thinking about, you know, it's much easier to decide when to buy something than it is to decide when to sell it. Yeah, no, I agree with that for sure. All right, guys. So thank you for listening this week. We'll put links to all these articles and blog posts in the show notes, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.